The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This is the last podcast before a summer break and we thought we'd focus on one of the most prominent ways that art will be consumed over the summer months, biennials. There are numerous biennials and triennials open across the summer or launching in the coming weeks. Already on the podcast, we've looked at the Berlin Biennale and the Venice Architecture Biennale. Among others currently on are the Shenzhen and Yinchuan Biennales in China and the one in Bucharest in Romania and then there's the Riga Biennial in Latvia and the 12th edition of Manifesta, the European Biennial of Contemporary Art which is this year in Palermo, Sicily. Opening next week is the first Front International, a new triennial show in Cleveland, Ohio and a more long-standing American biennial, Sightlines, opens in Santa Fe on the 3rd of August. Later in the podcast, I'll be talking to Jane Morris, who has written extensively on biannuals, including a piece which you can read online at theartnewspaper.com called Is the Biannual Model Busted? But first, the Liverpool Biennial opens in that city in northwest England on the 14th of July. Called Beautiful World, Where Are You? It's co-curated by Sally Talent, and Sally joins me on the line from Liverpool, where she's making the final preparations. Sally, tell me what it's like to be in the final stages of preparations for a biannual. I imagine it must be exciting, but also a bit nerve-wracking. Would that be right? Well, it's very challenging, I think is probably the word. (laughs) We're installing at the moment in 15 sites, and um, we have an amazing plan and an amazing schedule and a brilliant team. But of course, everything kind of doesn't go according to plan. So really, it's like, um, you know that film Poltergeist? You know that scene in the girl's bedroom where everything is flying around? Yes. And it's all just in total chaos. And then, like, you know, I feel like we're kind of in that moment. And what I need to do is just settle everything down in the right place. So maybe that'll give you a good sense of what it <laughs> feels like. It's great. It's very exciting. All the artists are here. It's looking brilliant. But there's a lot to do. Great. So tell me, like, you know, when you come to organise a band, you're a co-curator, it should be said. Tell me, tell me about your, your co-curator on this project, but also about how that process works with a co-curator and, and pulling together. Do you, do you start with a couple of artist lists on both of your parts and then, and then, sort of, <laughs> and then come to an agreement? How's it, how's it work? So, I mean, we're quite different to other biennials here in Liverpool. So I'm artistic director overall and I've got a permanent role and lots of biennials don't really have that. So the reason we have a co-curator is that um, I have a fantastic team on the ground and all year round we are doing projects, we're doing commissions, we work together with communities. So I sort of describe our project as a perennial biennial. And we um, we accumulate our work towards the biennial. So the biennial is is one of the things we do, but not the only thing we do here in the city. So by um, in order for us to, I think, challenge our own thinking and, and, and make sure that we're connecting to uh, conversations elsewhere in the world, it's interesting for us to connect with other people. And it's for that reason I invited Kitty Scott, who is the uh, Carolyn Morton Rapp Curator of Modern Contemporary Art at the AGO in Canada, to to work together with us uh, to co-curate this edition. And so, um, you know, one of the things that starts to formulate how we work together is really understanding what's needed here and what the conversations are that are live, both in the city but also in the world. And then you, you know, like anything, you you work towards thinking, okay, what are the relevant questions that we can ask? What are the political or contemporary urgencies? And how can we create opportunities for artists to do amazing things? 
And do you begin with a set of sites that you know you want to use or is that completely dictated by the artist? Because it's all based on commissions, right? Yeah, uh, as far as possible. We're commissioning biennial, but we are we do also present some existing work and actually some of our artists are deceased, so we're not commissioning uh-huh. new work from them. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Um, um, so we have some long-standing partners that we work with, and that's really amazing. And that's a, you know, it's the it's the tenth edition of Liverpool Biennial this year, and we've really established some strong uh, collaborations. So Fact, Tate, Blue Coat um, have always been partners in the Biennial. We've worked recently and more recently with Open Eye, and for the first time this year, we're working together with RIBA North, which is a new architecture gallery anyway in the city. But then this year, we're working with lots of new partners. So the, the Victoria Gallery and Museum, which is an amazing space that I don't think anyone or many people will have visited before. And then um, we are working in, in and together with some of the city's civic collections and museums. So one of the opportunities, I think, of a biennial is that we can reinvent ourselves in whatever way we want. And I think you know, part of coming to see the biennial is also exploring the city and understanding, you know, part of the architecture and the histories and the narratives that emerge through the through the rich civic collections we have here as well. Tell me more about the title. So Beautiful World, Where Are You? That was Kitty's proposal. So she, we, um, the, for the last biennial, just, just when we launched it, it was shortly after the Brexit vote had happened. And this was quite, um, it, it really framed the opening and how we were thinking about the city, particularly Liverpool, which is a port city, as you know, and is a city that's always been defined through the ebb of flow of people uh, and international conversations. And then after that, of course, we have the election of Trump in America, the rise, really, I would say, of the right across the globe, you know, what, and, the, and, the, and the enormous kind of refugee crisis that we're facing. So how do you create a framework that speaks to that without it being overly didactic or overbearing and so we were struggling Kitty and I and the team we were talking a lot about the way politics and what cities mean and also what what you know post-industrial cities like Liverpool what does it mean to try and reinvent reinvent what work looks like here um, because you know in the UK we've deindustrialized. so all of those questions seem very pressing so uh, the other thing that Liverpool has um, is that uh, we're a music city and we're well known for our long history of music and we kind of somehow wanted to connect to that. So Kitty found the answer in Schubert, of course. And um, Schubert um, had um, made a number of short-form songs um, before he died. And one of them was adapted from a poem written in the 17th century, a time when... um, you know, the world was in disarray and Europe was in reinvention. And the poem begins and ends with the line, beautiful world, where are you? And that seems like such a fitting, um, let's say, call that we could uh, use to actually engage with, with anybody, but certainly to give artists a very open um, starting point which they can respond to. It can be like, beautiful world, where have you gone? Beautiful world, what could you be, what happened, you know, et cetera. So it's fair, I don't think it's too limiting in terms of a starting point. That's how, that's a long answer to your question, but that's how we got to it, yeah. Well, yeah, but it, but I suppose this, that's the key with the title. You, you need to point artists in a certain direction, but not straight jacket them or not make it too loose, I guess. 
Yeah, or not make it overly didactic. So it's a curatorial proposition. And, you know, because we're working with um, a lot of artists, we want to give them an opportunity to think through some of the questions. All of them have visited the city. All of them have spent time here. All of them have spent time with us. And actually the works, I think, uh, begin to offer up, not answers to that question, but actually to further complicate the question. Because actually this world that we all live and attempt to operate in needs to be more diverse in terms of the perspective it takes. So depending on where you live in the world, that's your centre and how do you then define the world around you or your experience of the world. So, I, you know, I hope what people will experience when they come is is a kind of layered... I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's incoherent, but there is no possibility of coherence or a single answer to any of these questions or issues. Indeed, and you've and you've you've, you've very clearly invited a very broad range of artists. It is a very diverse selection. Mm. Can, can you tell me about some of the artists that you've invited? Yeah, so we've got um, 42 artists from 22 different countries, and I think it's 30 new commissions, which is a lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry, that's a hysterical giggle. Um, <laughs> so we've worked with, so for example, at Tate's Gallery, um, we're presenting an amazing, I, I was in there yesterday and it looks really great, an amazing um, uh, collection of work by Hegu Yang, who's a South Korean artist and someone who we think hasn't really been represented uh, well enough in this country. She has a fantastic, um, you know, uh, series of exhibitions that she's had outside of the UK but she hasn't been seen here so for us it was very important to include her uh, and to give her a kind of platform in this show then then upstairs at Tate we have a number of artists who who bring um, uh, a question a series of questions to the table around indigeneity so we have Dale Harding who's an artist from Australia who's um, an Aboriginal artist who's made an incredible uh, wall painting at Tate. He finished it yesterday and it's really moving, I think, piece of work. And then we've worked by Dwayne Lintlaker and Annie Putaguk and Brian Jungen, all of whom are First Nation artists. Annie is, in fact, Inuit and were brought to the table by Kitty, of course, because of her experience in Canada. And I think, very importantly, um, questioning and bring, bringing to the fore um, issues that really, um, I think, uh, put a mirror to the kind of colonial histories of this context and this country as well. Um, and um, we also have work um, by, in there by Kevin Beasley. So it's not, it's not a straightforward show. It's complex. Kevin's a really uh, uh, important um, emerging artist from the U.S. And I think, you know, what you begin to see is a weaving together of different narratives from different perspectives across the globe. You know, across the road in Open Eye Gallery, we've got work by Madiha Ijaz, who's um, uh, an artist based in Karachi in Pakistan. And her work speaks to the important role of librarians as the kind of um, people who hold on to our culture and our knowledge. And uh, sometimes you know, sometimes they make that knowledge accessible and sometimes it's quite hard to access the knowledge. And I think, you know, post-partition, um, the issue of language and the erasure of Urdu, uh, actually by English, is a very important issue. So, you know, these things kind of begin to uh, reveal um, different narratives and different histories. One of the things, I mean, you, you mentioned um, Liverpool's 
kind of history there and it seems to me that it's a really it's a city which is which is really ripe for the kind of discussions you want to have it's a post-industrial city it was literally the city which the government in britain in the 1980s talked about managed managed decline which is a famous phrase um and it and yet it has thrived since and it is an extraordinary thriving city and it always had and and importantly for instance it voted to remain it was one of these metropolitan centers that voted to remain so there's a lot of um there's a lot of tension in Liverpool. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good site for a biennial, I would say. I think so. There's a number of reasons. I was on the radio this morning here, and um, they're very excited because it's biennial time, and people are already arguing with me about if it isn't or is art. And I love that fact that we have to have those arguments but we have them every day with everybody so like you know we're installing we were installing a work yesterday in in a public a public realm work uh, in exchange flags lots of people were coming over to me and having you know having a discussion i was like it's not finished yet (laughs) can we just finish putting it up but people are kind of wanting to have that conversation and i'm kind of i'm kind of excited to live in a city where um the citizens here feel ownership of culture we have this second largest cultural offer in the UK outside of London, you know, so eight museums, including 8-8, so the Tate of the North and the Biennial. And I think there's a kind of openness here uh, to contemporary thinking and contemporary ideas. And I think somehow that comes from being a port city. I think they have that because port cities were always the first port of entry, a place where things would arrive. You know, we have lots of examples here of pioneering architecture, like the first steel frame building in the UK. We had the first train journey that happened here. So there's lots of engineering first. And I think there's something in the, there's something in the, um, I don't know, attitude, let's say, or, the ethos of the city that makes them very open to challenging and and new ideas, which makes it a brilliant place to do a biennial. <laughs> and does it does it pan out across the biennial? I mean, in the past, there's you know you've always been keen to have performance and events that that that, that yeah, exist yeah. over the course of the biennial. Are you doing lots of that this time? Yes, we have a very intense program of activity. I looked at the guide yesterday and I was like, oh dear. So that's it. I'm here without a day off till the end of November, basically, end of October, something like this. Um, no, we've got a fantastic programme. One of the things we're doing that I think is really exciting is, as well as um, commissioning contemporary artists, we've touched uh, into and opened up some of the civic collections. So we wanted to take works that are kind of already here. So some of the paintings at the Walker, the civic silver in the town hall, the Minton floor, which is underneath the uh, St. George's Hall, and activate those um, those objects and bring them into the present. So we, those are happening maybe not all the time, but as events during the biennial. We've also got a really... I, we love this event, Kitty and I, um, which is that the, the, the city has uh, one of only eight editions of the of the Birds of America by Audubon, and it belongs to the library. And um, it's displayed in this incredible case, like it's a very high-tech case. And because the book needs to be conserved very carefully, uh, the pages need to be turned regularly, actually on a weekly basis. And we've managed to work together with the library so that there'll be a public opening of the case and a page turning event every week of the performance. So things like that are happening, which are, which are really exciting. And then of course, we've got 
lots and lots of talks and performances and events. We're working with the Serving Library, who are based here, who programmed a series of talks, which really stretch the, um, let's call it the edges of the exhibition into different fields so that the debate starts to be pulled outside of the art world, which is always, to me, very important. And it's the, as you mentioned, it's the 10th biennial. Yeah. It feels it feels to me like a very established biennial and it seems to have a, a good long history now and it and it doesn't shirk from sort of referring back to that history and and uh and acknowledging its past in a way. Is it does it when you're working on a biennial like this, does it feel like you are in, in conversation with the past, in conversation with those past sites, for instance? Because, you know, you've always been very creative in terms of the way you've used the, the spaces in the city. Mm, yeah. I think that um it's funny, it's like having a an institution or an organization, but that it's it's fluid, and you know we're the I'm the custodian together with my team of the biennial and its history, and so we have amazing projects that happened here in the city, so this year actually we're reactivating um joyful trees, which is a work you might remember from two thousand and eight right which was these these trees that move around on the hilltop and it's kind of fitting for us to uh which um um to reactivate some of those projects and we're also very keen that people you know revisit some of the works that we've done in the past and uh i think we're very proud of what's been achieved here i mean i don't know in the early years you know before the biennial was established it must have been incredibly hard for my predecessors you know lewis Biggs and his team to manage to do the biennial you know by the time I started and I've been here a while now um I sort of inherited a sort of teenage biennial and a sort of young adult biennial and it's it was quite established and I hope that we we know we continue to grow and deepen our deepen our partnerships in the city so it's not something that just happens once every two years that might be when maybe the public come on mass to see what we do but we operate in the city year round and we do things all the time because we're part of the cultural ecology here sally thanks so much for talking to me okay and thank you so much look forward to seeing you up here The Liverpool Biennial, Beautiful World, Where Are You?, opens on the 14th of July and continues until the 28th of October. Now, as I mentioned, Jane Morris, an editor-at-large at the art newspaper, has written about biennials on numerous occasions. Most recently, she interviewed a range of curators about the subject for an article for the art newspaper headlined, Is the Biennial Model Busted? And Jane joins me now. Jane, the subject of your article in the art newspaper was a sort of where are we at with biennials, essentially, and have we reached peak biennial? What are the conclusions you're drawing? Okay, so let's uh, start with the peak biennial question. I mean, I think this is an interesting one because it it runs sort of parallel to the frequent discussions about whether we've reached the peak number of art fairs, whether we've reached the peak number of great big massive new contemporary art museums that have been springing up around the world. And I think there was certainly a feeling about maybe two or three years ago that in fact we had. And I think the reason I say two or three years ago, well, it had to be two years ago, wouldn't it, was the combination of Brexit and Trump and then the awareness of the growing sort of polarisation of politics in Europe in India, Russia, and so on, began to make people feel that all these things were a symptom of globalisation and that globalisation was very likely to run into reverse and that as a result, we would see fewer of these entities. 
What actually seems to be happening, though, is that uh, whether that political theory is correct, the growth in fairs, um, contemporary museums and biennials does in fact continue. So I don't think we can honestly say that we have reached a peak. I mean, the research that um, I based my article on was done by um, the University of the Arts in Zurich, and they found that there were I think around 320 biennials, which was considerably more than anybody had ever thought. I mean, I've seen other people's PhD research on this, and most people were saying 200, 220. So they found a lot more than anybody thought. Um, And they also showed that the rate of growth has happened very much in the last 20 years, particularly um, in Asia. But, you know, there are still lots and lots of places that don't have biennials, and there are still lots and lots and lots of cities, um, particularly sort of middle-rank cities, that seem very keen to have one. So, you know, Riga's just opened one, and next year Oslo's going to have one. And no doubt by the time we do the year ahead, in a few months' time, we'll have found a few more. That's right. I mean, I suppose one of the interesting aspects of this is what are the reasons that people want these biennials? Is it because they want to become a contemporary art centre? Is it because they want to attract more tourists? So they're also, I mean, the fact is, not all biennials are the same. Not all biennials are equal, and therefore they have all sorts of different approaches and all sorts of different effects, right? I think I think the thing that's making a lot of curators and possibly artists concerned is that it does seem that most of them are not established because there is a deep desire to develop or forward the conversation around contemporary art. I think they are still, as probably they were in the past, often uh, aspects of city or regional marketing. Um, Now, to be fair, I haven't spent a lot of time talking to individual cities about why they did or didn't do them. But I think it's reasonably fair to surmise that they may or may not be done to generate tourism. Um, There is certainly a feeling that in Asia, a lot of them have been done to generate tourism, but as they were in Europe beforehand. Um, But it's quite possibly more a part of city branding. So in the same way that contemporary art has become fashionable, cities want to look modern, contemporary, forward-looking, and contemporary art does that very well. And it's not quite the same as having to invest in a symphony orchestra and a classical repertoire, and that doesn't sort of tick these kind of rather trendy, buzzy boxes either. One of the striking things about about biennials is that you can see that certain of them have a kind of uh, going with a kind of tried and trusted um, serial biennialist, let's say, a curator like somebody like Hu Hanru, who has done numerous biennials across the world, is a really reliable curator and a very well-connected curator, somebody whose theoretical basis for lots of his shows is very solid and, and, you know, he's invited lots of interesting artists to be part of his shows, but he's kind of a safe pair of hands and then there are others who want to do it differently. Do you have a sense of what the best strategy for a new kind of biennial is from your conversations with curators? Actually, I feel these things go in waves. And I think Massimiliano Gioni said something to me very interesting, which is, you know, he said the one thing we know about the Biennale is it must be one of the most debated forms in the art world. We debate it more than, say, the form of the art fair. Um, And I think I should add as an interesting aside, one thing that we do notice is that although a lot of people are setting up biennials quite a lot of them have started setting up art fairs instead and I think I think we'd probably all rather go to a biennial than an art fair I certainly would um sorry but to just to <laughs> backtrack uh, and what uh, Joni said which I thought was very interesting and true is that because the biennial form is debated so much um in one sense we can s- say that it is a relatively strong and self-critical and robust form because no sooner do we get a rash of exhibition type A um, then somebody will come along and say it's time to do exhibition type B 
If there is disquiet in the art world, and I think there is amongst some curators quite clearly and and some artists and so on, um, I think it's the fact that a certain model has emerged at the moment. And in many ways, it is actually the Harold Zeman model where you have a, a, a central curator, the curator sets a theme, the works are chosen to fit into the theme and very large amounts of um, corresponding literature will be produced of more or less opaqueness, often very opaque, <laughs> right. um, uh, around the Biennale. And, and, and that model has been copied again and again and again and again. And I think what we're seeing now is not so much uh, there are too many biennials because, you know, if somebody sets up a really great one in, in Honolulu, well, in fact, they have got one in Honolulu, sadly. Nobody has sent me on a trip to see the Honolulu <laughs> biennial. Um, I think there'd be quite a sort of queue for that one. Um, but basically, you know, if Honolulu wants to set up a biennial and it's good, what's the problem? There's, and there's an audience, what's the problem? So as I say, I think the problem that people feel more is that we've fallen into a particular way of doing them. And as a result, now people are saying, you know, should you have the single curator who may or may not have a load of junior minion curators underneath him or her. Um, but at the end of the day, it's his or her name on the biennial and it's their theme. Um, you know, do you get artists to do it? Do you do what... Um, Francesco Bonami did in Venice some, you know, 15, 20 years ago when it was divided into, I think, 10 or 12 sections. Some were curators, some were artists, and they just did what they wanted. Um, you know, so I think people are starting to think about what's the format of this thing. So I think that's kind of problem number one. Problem number two is this theme issue, I think. Um, I mean, I think we've all at one time or another looked at the themes of Biennales, and some of them are so wide they could frankly be anything. Um, and others are so prescriptive um, that, you know, you start to feel like a lot of work is being shoehorned um, into a particular thesis. And I think the way that some artists feel and some curators is that that isn't doing the work necessarily justice. I think the final one is, and I think this is actually the worst one, is that you see a lot of biennales where from a visitor point of view, there's very little to look at. You know, there might be a lot of writing on a wall or things in cases and, you know, small things and generally not that visually exciting things. And I think what's a real challenge for any curator is to tell a story visually. So if they have got a theme, hopefully the theme is a nice, interesting, complex one, um, but also can they tell that story visually and I mean I think Oquiem was all did do that in in Venice in 2015 I think Massimiliano Gioni with his one which was about outsider artists or people who wouldn't have normally been considered artists like they might be psychotherapists that kind of thing I think he managed to put together um, a very convincing argument for the, the 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 broadening of who would be defined as an artist but he did it through work that looked good and interesting and people found enjoyable as an experience so I think that's the kind of final problem which is this is the problem of biennials that feel like they were created to be a set of seminar texts mostly to interest other curators and there are some very interesting comments from Ralph Rugoff uh, who's the next curator of the Venice Biennale that we'll come to in a minute but, uh, but first I wanted to say if in 1972 when Zayman did um Documenta 5. It was a very controversial show because one of the artists, Daniel Buren, wrote a very eloquent piece, which I think still stands up as a very interesting critical text today, where he very clearly identified that there was a kind of triumph of the curator and the, cura the curator would become all powerful and the artists were just sort of uh, useful tools to them. If that 
happened in 1972 and we're now in 2018. Is there any evidence that there might be a shift or are we, in a way, are we just going to have a consistent sort of what we might call biennial art in the mainstream and just rely upon stuff around the edge to give us the more interesting... I'm Not, not, not to say that some of those shows aren't interesting, but, but at least to say some of the more fr- some of the fresher ideas are going to come from sort of alternative spaces perhaps I, th- I suppose I think that these things move in cycles actually um, and I think I mean frankly we see that in even politics today that in many ways we're looking at the the, the the recurrence of a cycle that would be very familiar to a lot of people who are around in the 70s and 80s I, I think the job of a good curator or whoever it is running a biennial um, we could maybe talk a bit about non-biennial forms but people who run biennials, I think they do need to look around, see what the general tenants are, and then go and do something different. I mean, if every single biennial becomes artist-run, I think somebody will start turning around and saying, bring back Zayman at a great rate of knots. Do do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's a right or wrong in any of this. I think it's more that once things become predictable and they fall into a samey kind of pattern, that's when we all start to say, hmm. We feel like we've seen something before. I mean, maybe we're all just novelty hands at the end of the day. So to return to what Ralph Rugoff said at um, Art Basel in a, in a conversation specifically about biannuals called What Do Biannuals Do? I think it was. Um, I think it was supposed to be who they were for, but I, I think the title might have got changed at some point. <laughs> right, OK. Because I think well, who they're for is a very interesting question. Well, it is indeed. And in fact, this links into what, what Rugoff said in the sense that he said that often he found that that rhetoric that framed the biennial didn't match with his experience of a visitor because what he said was actually the artworks themselves are doing much more complex things mm. they can say they contain multiple concerns which are uh, pushing the viewer in all sorts of really interesting directions and nothing can actually adequately contain all those ideas and I suppose I think that I think what he's saying is really encouraging because he's he's actually questioning the model and he's saying I want to put artists at the heart of it but I also want the audience to not be utterly confounded by the theme oh yeah I mean he 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 he, he said what I would have thought was evident but it's quite an interesting question that he felt that he felt he had to make the point so strongly that he was talking about the curator as a bridge between the artists and the audience. And he said, and hopefully the shortest and least meandering bridge um, we can find. I think that was interesting in the context of the discussion, though, because a number of people were asked uh, who the biennial was for, and they all said artists. Now, in fact, what actually happens is that a lot of them are really for curators. And that's the one thing that very few people ever say, but in fact does happen. And I think we've seen a number of biennials that are really feel as if, as I say, they were they were designed to be uh, impressed, to, to, to be to be well regarded on the pages of Art Forum amongst a very small scholarly group, um, but otherwise of, of you know, su- such a narrow interest or, 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 or underexplained for the for the for the visitor. I think Ralph is very, Ralph Rogoff is clearly very concerned about the visitor and the visitor experience. Of course, some people would say, if you take that too far, um, that what you end up is a different kind of Biennale art, which is very like art fair art, which is it's got to be big, spectacular, shiny, fairgroundy. And, you know, I mean, I've, 
I think Ralph Rookus has done some really, really interesting shows, and I think things like The Painting of Modern Life, which was the show about art and photography, was was great. I mean, did I like the cast in Holler show? Not so much. I mean, for me, that cast in Holler, for, to my taste, is too fairground, but it is very popular. So, you know, curators have got some challenges here, um, and I, you know, I don't think that... Just because we've had a rash of shows that have been full of documentation and stitching and, you know, things in vitrines, uh, lots of bits of paper in vitrines, it doesn't mean that that should be banished completely and that now we need to have the the big, the showy and the spectacular. I mean, I do think it's a very difficult job for curators, to be fair. And I think Venice particularly, with those incredibly difficult spaces and the the attention from the art world and the actually not that big budget really um i mean it's probably what about 10 million euro maybe 15 if you can get sponsorship but um it that's not a huge budget to fill such a large set of spaces with that many international artists and that much work being shipped from studios all around the world etc but what i do think is that most of them would benefit from thinking more about how to get information to the public Uh, and I know this is a challenge you don't want huge long labels you don't want everybody walking around with huge booklets or but 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 you need to do something and I do think a lot of the art becomes decontextualized in these big events Um, and the visitors I I wonder what the visitors are getting from some of them. I mean it's really interesting the whole idea of what artists want from biennials and and there was a big big perception amongst some of the critical response for instance to the most recent documenta which was seen as a very text heavy very philosophical theoretical um event um and yet there was a very clear public letter from the artists involved which is incredibly supportive of adam simchik the the um curator the chief curator and i think it's very easy for us to assume what what artists want and we have to have to remember that actually the artists are as plural as as, as curators etc and therefore one artist might want something completely different to another so i think again you're you're on a sort of um you're between a rock and a hard place as a curator anyway because because one artist might despise what you do and another might be absolutely welcoming of it absolutely i mean i think one of the things that is of interest though is the one thing that i think most people could agree is a problem with this proliferation of biennials is that there are a certain number of artists who are clearly the most desirable to have um i mean might be a hundred of them but there's a number of artists that many curators would like to put in their shows obviously that will change from you know group five years to five years as you see who becomes fashionable and who feels slightly last year's uh last year's event um but there is a bit of concern i think around the 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 the, the way this encourages artists to produce and there is a feeling that it does encourage overproduction it does encourage this um this uh you know very large studios you know pumping out work yeah and i think quite a few people have expressed curators have expressed concern about around that and i think there probably is some validity there of course the other thing is i think for many artists being in the biennale is not the the kind of um career boost or status symbol that it used to be um Maybe Venice still is. I think Documenta still is. Um, but in general, um, I think artists are now being invited to take, particularly when they're fashionable, are being invited to take part in a lot of biennials. And um, I've definitely heard people saying, well, I wanted so-and-so for, you know, my bi- quite an important biennial for my 
really very important biennial and there's been a bit of a kind of oh I don't know I might be able to fit you in between you know <laughs> between this art fair and this biennial over here and you know uh, you know maybe three years time kind of thing you know I suppose one of the interesting things is about how curators go about selecting artists because obviously again multiple multiple views multiple approaches um committees individuals all sorts of different ways in which artists are selected well i think the again the perhaps the more problematic ones are, and actually if i was a curator i would probably do this too and then you realize perhaps there is a problem which is step number one you would think you might contact all your colleagues around the world and ask them who they've seen who are of interest and it is quite clear that a lot of curators do do that and I think that might be one of the ways that this kind of group of let's say 50 60 whatever it is the way the group of a certain kind of fashionable artists emerge number one number two Biennials are very much like museums now in that they do need or tend to need, unless they're very well funded, they do tend to need the support of the gallery once again to help ship work and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, ship work, maybe contribute to catalogues, parties, whatever. But I suspect the biggest thing will be shipping an installation or supporting production costs. And once again, our friends, the very top rank of galleries who can afford this, um, are in a very good position um, to help. Whereas artists that are less, more under the radar, and you know, you can see if you've been invited to do Venice and you've still got your main job, I can see that it is difficult to spend vast amounts of time on studio visits that could be very fruitless or very yeah, yeah. To, to, to the less known artists yeah. so I think one of the questions around this thing of overproduction and it only really applies to certain kinds of artists other artists I'm sure would say that you know they don't get that kind of attention and in a funny way that's probably one of the reasons that the artists were so pleased with Adam Shimship because most of those artists were relatively unknown as I say I heard one person say they knew 50% which I still think was a record because most people were lucky if they heard of 25% of them um, that team did go out of their way to find a great number of artists that nobody had heard of or knew about um, I, I, I think I think the reason we all found that a more difficult biennial was more to do with the kinds of work they chose and the, the themes they wanted to address um, but you know it was it was very well argued I mean from a curatorial point of view I think Documenta was extremely well argued it was just it was difficult because there was such a lot to read um, and yeah but but I think the artists who were in Documenta probably felt that they did get a spotlight uh, that they wouldn't have got in any other way. And we've seen their work proliferating through the art world ever since, and that is something which always happens. However documentary is received, it always ripples through the art world and suddenly the museums are alive to it in a way they perhaps wouldn't have been before. Even in Art Basel, there was a surprising number. It didn't really get picked on. I think most people who were at the fair hadn't necessarily been to documented too. I'm talking about the reporters and so forth. But there was a surprising number of works that, from artists that one would consider not that commercial on show in the contemporary galleries in Art Basel. So they did actually even move into the market. It's a debate that's rumbled on for, for so long and I suspect it's going to go on for very much longer. Jane, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. You can read Jane's article on biennials online at theartnewspaper.com. And that's it for this week, and indeed for a few weeks, as the art world disappears for the summer. You can keep up to date on all the latest news from the visual arts and much more over the summer at theartnewspaper.com. 
We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, thanks for joining us for the Art Newspaper podcast so far. See you in a few weeks. <laughs>